Hello and welcome to the New Schools Podcast. Today's guest is a career school innovator with over 30 years of experience transforming learning in school. She is the author of Creating Micro Schools for Colorful Mismatched Kids and was recently interviewed on Good Morning America about micro schools. We are pleased to bring you today Dr. Maureen O'Shaughnessy. Maureen is the founding director of Leadership Preparatory Academy, Lead Prep for short, which is a nonprofit micro school in Washington State. She is also the founder of the Micro School Coalition, a cooperative of micro schools across the globe. Maureen offers consulting for people wanting to start or transform their schools and offers the Build Your Own Micro School class online. She also hosts a podcast called Education Evolution, wherein she aims to disrupt the education climate as we know it, ensuring each child is seen, heard, and valued, and met where they are academically, socially, and emotionally. In this episode, Shannon and Maureen dive into the world of collaboration and transformation through education. They explore different approaches to learner-centered education. Maureen shares her seven steps to innovative education, and she also shares the concept of a flipped classroom and what that looks like. I hope you enjoy this excellent conversation with your host, Shannon Falkenstein and Maureen O'Shaughnessy. Hi. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Great, how are you, Maureen? Doing really well, thank you. Good, oh, I'm so glad we're doing this. Yes, so am I. Good, good. Where are you? I'm in Seattle, so we're just wrapping up our school day. Right. Okay. I'm in El Salvador, but we're on mountain time. So we also just wrapped up a little bit ago. So tell me, like, do you, you have a school right now that you're running? Mm-hmm. And are you pre- like in present right now or are you online right now? We went online in the spring knowing that everybody needed, I mean, our state got shut down. We shut down right before the state said everybody gets shut down. But this fall, we're half and half because the mental health needs, the social needs, it's both. And so we've been outdoors and we're going to pivot to our winter schedule and be Tuesday or two days a week, high school, two days a week, middle school. So half of our micro school so that we can be indoors and socially distanced. So we're six feet apart, masks on, and it's rainy and cold. So we're moving it inside. Wow. Wow. Yeah, we're in a similar situation. Everything shut down March 16th. Our country has had one of the longest lockdowns of any country in the world. And we're not legally allowed to be back in school. We're all distance. We're doing everything we can to support our learners. And we are going to start just doing some, you know, play days, going to the park, just trying to get them out and about and moving and socializing because... I don't think people are talking enough about the toll that this is having on kids. We're talking about adults, 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 but I don't feel like the, the kids are in the conversation as much as they should be. 
Absolutely. The New York Times a couple of weeks ago had an article that they were talking 18 to 24-year-olds, so just right out of high school. One in four had contemplated or talked about suicide in the last month. And and I hear the elementary kids and preschool kids are like, why don't I get to play with my friends? It's taking a toll. And of course it is. As parents are stressed, working from home, trying to teach. That stress, kids are intuitive. Kids are picking up on that. Of course, this is a mental health challenge for everybody. Yes. It sure is. What's your age range in your school? Middle and high school. Oh, middle and high. Okay. So we're, I'm, I have littles, like I have infant community Montessori and then all the way up through, through middle school. But those little ones, they're missing those sensitive periods of reading, of executive function, of math. So we're just heartbroken Mm. and, and trying to do everything we can. And yeah, I don't, this is just such a huge global experiment. So. It's crazy. It happens. Yeah. Yeah. So, so micro school is like a big buzzword right now. And, you know, micro school, the word is like, just seems to be about size. But for me and for you, I know that it's a whole, <laughs> it's a whole lot more than just that. So can we jump right in there with that? And can you tell me more about like, what is the definition of a micro school and why is it so important? You know, they asked me that on Good Morning America in July, and I was like, small school? I felt so, (laughs) like, sorry, guys, it's just a smaller school, but what can we do when we're small? We can be so personalized, so creative. What can I do when I have a a school of a thousand? It's so lockstep and you have to be careful. And there's so many more procedures in place to manage the numbers. So it's magical that it's small. It's not just small school, but the definition, it's not like there's some special definition. It's the one room schoolhouse from, you know, little house in the prairie. It's, it's all of those things. And it's just a chance to rethink education and make sure it's working for our learners. Yes. Yeah. I love that. You know, it has so much more to it. And I think there's this, when I was in, in corporate America, we learned about that, how I can't remember the name of it. It's like any community over 150 members, you start to have too much anonymity and then it starts to break apart the bonds and the magic. And so that is like a key number, you know? So would you say that you would like never want your school to be more than 150 people for that reason? Well, we really go small because we want to be that place for kids that really want a voice or maybe didn't make it in another system and need to catch up in some areas or get extra support in some areas. So for us, we would have no more than 30 on each campus. We have two campuses with shared teachers. And if I had a different model, different space, something, I still think I'd like it to be 50 or less because we're almost like a large family and kids are so connected. They're so welcome. And it's, it's something that the larger you get, the more danger there is of that anonymity or of people being on the outside and not included. So for us, I like 50 or less, but yeah, 150 or less, especially for a high school that can have up to like 2000 kids. 150 would be really sweet. Nice. That's really nice. Yeah, I worked briefly at a middle school in Manhattan on the like Upper East Side. There were 3,000 children from in 6th, 7th, and 8th grade. And it was just wild. I mean, they just kids would just sometimes walk through your classroom and you 
and just come in and like knock stuff off the desk and you never didn't even know who they were. So there was no way to follow up on that or check in. I mean, nothing. It was terrible. And then I moved to a school of like 150 kids and it was bliss. So yes. Yes. I had the same. I, when I was a teacher, mm-hmm. I taught elementary and then I taught in Spain and came back and my district didn't have a, an elementary opening. So I taught at a high school over 700 kids per grade. It was just insane. So that was where I started my first micro school. We started a school within a school and there were 30 portables because we'd outgrown the, the building and everything. And we had a pod of portables and we had a couple of other teachers on board and five of the six periods, they were with us and it was integrated, interdisciplinary. Then they could go do Japanese or drama, do an elective in the main school. But breaking anything from big to smaller can be so important. Yes, yes, it sure, it sure can. So tell me a little bit about kind of like your origin story. Like how did you, you know, how did you become interested in education? What, just what's your background? How did you come to all this? Boy, I've always wanted there to be no limits. So like as a college kid, skydiving and scuba diving and then raising my daughters in all these different countries. And I, I love that. And, and I feel sad when there are limits and I always babysat a lot as a kid and really enjoyed kids and um, enjoyed gifted and special needs populations. So did teaching and summers off. I did a ton of travel, loved that, and then worked overseas. But then it just was moving around the world, international schools. My girls got a lot of attention and it was a very strong sense of community. People really care for each other and you'd have a mentor when you come into a new country and then you'd mentor the next group of new people. So really communal and coming back to the States so the girls would have more choices for high schools. It was just the opposite in their high school experience. We tried all kinds of things, disasters. So you get somebody that's been a school administrator for over 20 years, has done master's and doctoral work in edmin and educational innovation. And then you add on to that what I unapologetically say, a pissed off mom. And it's like, come on, really? You can't make this work for my two girls. I am going to create something and I want to be that person that does, that school that does make it work for kids that just needed a little more voice or a little more time. And in 2013, I helped both my girls graduate early and started the school. It's like, this does not have to be. So that was kind of what got me going. I love it. I love it. That is great. I love doers like that. Definitely. So wow, that is so cool. Tell me more about your travels. Like I noticed that you did something in the Andes. You just said that you were in Spain. Like tell me more about your kind of give me like your tour around the world of where you lived. Wow. Yeah, I got to study in Mexico and Spain in college and was hooked. You know, just travel bug had bitten me. So I went back and taught in Spain. And then after marriage, a doctorate, two babies, I was a school principal in Kuwait. And then in Peru, they asked me to open a micro school in the Andes for a Canadian mining company. Then I was a high school principal. I was kind of doing two-year hops and letting my girls really get to experience the world. I had a peaceful divorce, kept the Peruvian nanny, and we moved on to Hungary. I was a high school principal there, and then I was I grabbed a couple of the Hungarian teaching couples from Canada, and we went to Ecuador, and I was the school director in Ecuador, and then went on and was in the Philippines. But I went to the Philippines to have a bigger school because my daughters needed more people, and one 
had ADHD and was going to end up with an autism diagnosis, hadn't yet at that point. And the other one had jumped a grade and was just needing more stimulation than we could do. So I went to the Philippines because they had a much larger school and was a principal. And even that, I just thought, I need more options. So I came home. But my girls were in like 20 different countries before they were in, in high school. And then I did one more interim from Seattle, I went down and for a semester in Costa Rica. I had the girls down before they finished high school. So they were in six other countries for their schooling. And every break, we're like, anchor what? The Galapagos. Come on, let's do this. So why not, you know? Wow, that's great. So, I mean, I would say you're actually more like a world schooler at heart. <laughs> <laughs> it's so cool because then differences are valued and appreciated. And when there's been all this scare about Middle Easterners or, or Muslims, like, no, those were the crazy cool people from Jordan and Syria that welcomed us in Kuwait and had us on picnics and explained Eid and explained fasting. No, these are really nice people and explained why they choose to be covered and it's an honor. These are not scary. You don't get to paint them as bad guys. They're wonderful human beings. It's it's really hard to buy into stereotypes when there's been that personal experience of something other than that. Yeah, that's like Brene Brown has that quote. She says, it's really hard to hate people up close. Yeah. Right? Go Brene. Yes. Uh -huh. Love her. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, wow. Well, that's just incredible. So our podcast is aimed at family who is frustrated with the status quo, frustrated with what is available. And it's like, I don't want to do this anymore, but doesn't really know how to, how to make the jump, what the options are, what you can do legally, what you, you know, what, how much risk is this going to be? How much work is this going to be? Is anyone going to be out there when I get out there to join me in this journey? So, um, what would be kind of your advice for someone who's in that position of frustration and not knowing what their options are? Definitely move forward and be the change. I feel so sad when I, like there's a, a local group of parents with kids with ADHD and they meet twice a year and have big conferences. It's like, while you're lamenting, your kid is stuck in a system that's not working. I get that you need a place to kind of say, oh my gosh, is this hard for you too? but turn that into action. So please, if there's a problem, be a part of the solution because our kids are only kids for so long and they're forming their identity and they're deciding if they're stupid and incapable. They're making these harsh judgments on themselves. So don't let that happen. I felt like I was doing a fair amount by starting a micro school and then adding a second campus. And then a year ago, it's like, no, I want a bigger impact. I want more people. So I put together a seven-step book on how to start your own micro school or a school within a school. Or there's so many models, but how to do something smaller. And there's some really clear things that need to happen and maybe not in that order. But then last spring, I started the Education Evolution podcast. And I'm like you, I'm pulling in who's doing cool stuff, what's broken, what's working, who's fixing it, how. And they're on the podcast talking about that. I think we all need to do things to generate hope and possibility and spread the word because there are so many children advocates in silos out there and it doesn't have to be. And then this summer after Good Morning America with Pandemic Pods, Micro School Coalition being, or Micro Schools being a big deal, since I had the Micro School Coalition and Micro School book, I was getting a lot of calls. And so I started to do a Micro School 101 just once or twice a week, just an hour info session. And then that led to a seven-week course that I unpacked a seven, seven steps. And so I still have that course. And the thing was, in the midst of this, Seattle was fervently 
engaged and still is in Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. And, and it has a personal meaning to me as well as just the really, really important humane message. So when I started the course, I donated any tuition that came. It went straight to the Bullet Garden Project, a New Jersey Black nonprofit that pivoted and opened their own micro school with our support. And my, my micro school has shared all of our materials. They have our email address so they can get into all of our files and take whatever they want. But I think when you're doing things, find something like our Build Your Micro School program or Micro School Coalition website or something. But always, always, always remember, it's got to be about equity. It can't be. I mean, the pandemic pod conversation, I said multiple times in interviews this summer, you know, Parade Magazine, different places, guys, this cannot be an upper middle class white solution. What are you doing? I coach some Portland moms. It's like, okay, if you want it to be neighbors that haven't been out and hadn't, what, what can you do to get a person of color in, maybe a, a high school graduate or an LGBTQ person, you know, to come in and motivate your kids while you're just kind of managing what? Can you do some scholarships? Can you donate? Can you go and work at the food bank with your kids? everything has to be about changing the institution and creating that equity. And I hope people don't get locked into what's, what am I going to do for me? So yeah, you need to find some other people and do something. Right. I hear you that. Wow. That's amazing. You are just so prolific. You do so many things. (sighs) Tell me because for the listeners, tell us the name of your book so people can find it. Creating micro schools for colorful mismatched kids. Oh, I love that. Okay, great. And tell me about your course. Tell me the name of your course and where they can find it. So um, the microschoolcoalition.com, you can find it on there and it's build your micro school. We did it as a seven week course and I am so humbled. As a result, this New Jersey school started, a Florida school started and a Texas school is starting in two weeks. And we had other people that are like, I planted a seed, I wanna do this, I need to move first and then I'm gonna do that. But that our little community, we were supporting each other, we had office hours, sharing ideas. It resulted in three more options for kids in three other states. It's like, yes, it's doable, yay. That's amazing, (sighs) that's really amazing. Tell us, so I don't want you to give all your, all your, you know, all your lessons away, but give us, would you mind just giving us a brief, like, what are the seven kind of steps that someone would do so they can anticipate what they would have to do? Yeah. You know, it's probably clearer on my website if you open the table of contents of my book, because I am not a person that memorizes in, in linear form, but you definitely want to get really clear on your mission and you need a tribe, you need others supporting with that. You, and I don't know, I've got to, I would have to, I don't memorize it, it's all these things. And I pulled the seven steps out of the book and use them. Um, a lot of it is figuring out your resources, who you want to be, who you want to serve, having a business plan as well as an educational plan. I think more, I mean, I've got the different steps and there's ways of going about them and the marketing and stuff, but more, I just want to caution a lot of times people that want to start it are educators and they're like, oh my gosh, I'm going to do this cool lesson and we're going to learn this way and hands-on and student-led. It's like, you really need a pragmatist. I grabbed my book because the thing is, is nothing in life is linear and you start something and you have to come back to it. Sometimes you get a resource when you're still working on your mission, you're already getting some of the, so um, the seven steps 
the order I have them in the book, begin with a mission. You really do need to know what are you about and, and what are you aspiring? What's your mission at your, at your school? So we know that kids are not one size fits all. We want every student to be seen, heard, valued, and thriving. Excellent. I love that. Yes. And so we have like a one to five teacher student ratio. So they get a lot of attention. They can turbo, they can slow it down. They can deal with holistic needs, get help on a, a dual enrollment college class they're taking. We want to be small enough that we can really meet kids where they are, which is the big gap, you know? Yeah. And are you a learner driven model or are you, yep. do you do teaching? Nope. We actually use a flipped model. And so that means that we send home a little mini lesson and that kind of is a front loading or supplementary and then kids drive the learning in school. So tell me what that looks like, like for someone who doesn't understand what that is. Give us an example of a lesson like that. So we're doing world history right now and the, the teachers are having the kids look at different cultures and pick the religions and um, explore basic values through the different lens. And so the flip might be, what, what flip did I just see? I, I, I'm not well-versed in the Buddhist faith. I think it's the four noble truths was a flip unpacking that and then the eight whatever the right, right action, right, that piece of it. So the kids watched that just to kind of supplement. And then they came to school and they kept going on the projects that they had designed and there's a project board and they need to go through these steps at their own pace and get checked off, work with their peers, some of its group, some of its individual. So we have some themes and essential questions, but then they go with their passions and their curiosities to unpack it. So you won't see teachers lecturing because that's passive and then the teachers are doing the hard work and you don't see homework. The kids watch a flip and answer questions that's less than 10 minutes. High school kids do 15 minutes of online math practice. So never is there more than 30 minutes of homework. We don't want that. We want them to work where they're getting coached and not work in isolation at home. And we don't want rote. There are countries that don't believe in hours of homework and don't label it rigor and give it value. And we aspire we ascribe to that philosophy. Great. And how do you do assessment? So a lot of it is formative. So I know that's education talk for some listeners, but so summative assessment is a summary at the end of the unit or at the end of the semester, you have a final exam and a, a silly name for that is a postmortem. It's yeah. dead. The class is over. It's not going to inform what the teacher teaches because it was like the last day of class. So it doesn't inform learning formative assessments. When you have such a small teacher-student ratio, we're walking around and saying, oh, you have this. Just show me one more. Okay, I'm going to have you jump ahead because you obviously have this. Or, whoa, I see a gap here. Can you show me? So it's ongoing assessment to see where the student is. And then based on their interests, oh, you, you're interested in this. And, oh, you want to see if you could put this to music and create it. What would that look like? So it's coaching. It's pulling out. And... There are times where it's like, okay, here's your rubric. And a lot of times the kids create the rubric. Okay, at the end of this project, it's going to have to meet these things and you're going to have to score yourself. But it's not the same memorize, spit it out, get a grade at the end. It, so assessment is much more organic. Math, because it's so sequential, we use a system. But then if you pretest, you jump ahead. So kids are all over the place in math from maybe a year or two behind to doing college level math. 
And that's how it should be. Our brains shouldn't all have to go at the same pace, but in larger systems, we have to manage all those bodies somehow. And so everybody starts in ninth grade algebra or geometry and chapter one and has the same amount of time. It's a management technique. It's not best practice for how any of us learn. I totally agree. That that uh, wonderful TED talk by Salman Khan talking about would you build a house on an 80% foundation and talking about let's test for mastery, not for test scores, or let's teach for mastery, not for test scores. Such a powerful, powerful talk and talking about how now because of the availability of technology that we can actually make mastery fixed and time variable instead of mastery variable and time fixed. And that's just amazing to me. Now, when I see, you know, going to a traditional classroom and I watch like 30 children learning from one teacher at the front of the board and they're all supposed to be learning the same exact thing at the same exact time, I just... I just can't take it anymore because it just doesn't work. I know. We had our back to school night last week too. And, and the parents had to go, all of our teachers taught a mini lesson. We don't talk at them. We engage them. I wanted them to the feel of our teachers. They were like, Oh my gosh, seven different. And they were just mini. It's like, yeah, some schools do this to a kid every day. They have seven different bosses and guys, this is nighttime. You're feeling a little tired. I get it. Cause you worked all day and now you're doing more in the evening homework for adolescents, Mm -hmm. same thing, guys. And they're not getting paid in their minds. So so they were like, oh, yeah, grueling and oh, endless. And I'm not a teenager that wants to be out socializing and doesn't see the value. You know, so yeah, what we do to kids, some people actually call it a crime, what our educational system ends up doing to a lot of kids. Yeah, it just it doesn't work anymore. I in my in my humble opinion. So um, okay, well, so I totally derailed you from step two. What's step two? <laughs> so recruit energetic and committed trailblazers because it really takes a certain mindset, and you need to get some people on board. And then you've got to engage your community collaborators. That might be the person that has a facility, some potential parents, some people. You know, just gotta grow that tribe forth is get the word out. And that's been a surprise to me how hard it is and be known. And I'm a business person. So I didn't know that your brand has to be seen at least seven times before registers and that people, you know, multiple and three years later, it's like, oh yeah, we heard about you a while ago. And now we're, it's like, really? So market, get the word out repeatedly and word of mouth. Very important. How did you kind of get that brand out, get the word out? Did you use social media? Did you do meetups? Did you, you know, post flyers? Like what did you do? Yes, yes, yes. So a ton of meetups and a lot of times in public libraries all over the place to be in different areas at first going to where they were flyers. And you know, Print media didn't really do much for us, you know, being in the local education magazines or parent magazines. So that didn't really do much for us. And the wonky thing that has is those yard signs that you see politicians using. Wow. Yeah. Oh, I saw your yard sign. It's like, okay. And of course, word of mouth, now that we're up and running, parents saying, yes, this has been a godsend for my kid. And, and then putting that out on social media, or, hey, my kid got his first four point, or hey, my kid chose the honors track because he loves this. Those personal stories that they share with their own social media community, those sometimes are, are the most priceless testimonials. 
Fantastic. Okay, thank you. And let's see. So fifth step is choose what makes your school special. And we can't be everything to everybody. So our school is so into participation, we don't have textbooks, that one thing we're not is we're not available for kids that push back or refuse to work. We don't have the bandwidth. We don't have packets to send home. Kids have to complete all of their work. They can't take a zero. So the kids sign a participation contract. So we know who we are and who we aren't. And, and we know what we want to be. We're, but we also know we own, we're tiny. We offer one foreign language, Spanish. So if you want French or German, we're not going to try, you know, what our special is. Isn't, I mean, the three schools that just opened in Build Your Micro School, one is based, based on gardening and nature, and um, they're in a food apartheid area, so on education and nutrition. Another is on neurodiversity and play, through, learning through play. And the, the third one is going to be boat building and hands-on boys, middle school, outdoors. So what's special about each of them is so different. And we have so many different learners having gazillion options, including traditional school is working for some kids. We just need to keep having options until nobody's falling through the cracks. So figuring out what's special about you is a huge one. That's really amazing. So following, like really letting students, engaging students in learning who they really are and what they really want to do, which provides that natural motivation. And like Maria Montessori said, follow the child's needs and interests. And yes. so that will take them through exactly, they've got it in them. They already know where they want to go. We just have to observe, follow, provide inspiration tools. Um, I love that. And it also reminds me of, um, you were talking about the one room schoolhouse. And I believe that back in that era that children, you know, as they became adolescents, they would actually go into sort of apprenticeships. Right. And so they would decide, you know, I want to be a blacksmith or I want to work with horses or this is what my family's always done. And so they would go in and be apprenticed by an older master. And that sounds very similar to like the boat building and the gardening and, and, yeah. uh, and what have you. And a shout out to Big Picture Learning. They do that. It's a model in a ton of different schools. And it's really based on being learner directed and get those kids out into mentorships. It's all over the place. It's a philosophy. One of the few philosophies out there, it's not a lockstep uh, model, use my model. It's it's a philosophy that really empowers adolescents to like to have those apprenticeships, to have those real world mentors, and to see why this is important. Not when will I ever use this again, but oh, this is giving me something I want for life. And yeah, we, um, high tech high in California, part of the charter school system. There are places that are really owning kids connecting with community and real world and that place based learning. What's in our area and what can we do? Absolutely. I'm sure you've seen Most Likely to Succeed, yes, the yes. documentary. Mm -hmm. We show that uh, every year, and we showed it in a huge movie theater here, and like 250 people came. It was just incredible to, to turn so many people on to the concept of a different kind of an education. So exciting. Absolutely. Yeah. And then I have two last steps. Get clear and creative on your resources. Lead Prep, we're in year eight, and we are scrappy and happy, you know? So we are like in that. shared spaces, a, a church space that on Sundays is used by their Sunday school, but it's ours the rest of the week, you know, but that means we can have that low teacher student ratio. Our important 
priority is the kids, not you know, having capital campaigns and building buildings. We want lots of teachers so the kids get lots of support. So we've got to figure out what resources and get really creative because like first year for the Seattle campus, we ended up in a red box. It was the Pocket Theater's front lobby covering their wine and beer display. And they were amazing. They were like, yeah, we don't use it during the day. And and they were for profit with benevolence. You know, sometimes nonprofits can be really not so nonprofit, but they were the opposite. It's like, well, we need 10 kids to be able to pay you this amount amount a month. So I'm not sure when we can start. They're like, hey, if you have less than 10, we'll just lower the rate until you get to 10. It was like, hey, we're community. What you're doing matters. So get creative. Ask. A lot of people are afraid to ask and you never know when there's a conference room not being used or this one outdoor, like on this big barn, farm facility with all of these little micro businesses going on. And each of the businesses are going to be doing some of the teaching. Brilliant. Ask. Collaborate. Yeah. And then the seventh step is just open your doors. I think that what's that saying that perfection is the enemy of good or something. If we're like, oh, it's not quite right. Or I don't be scrappy. Open the doors. You're never going to grow. You're never going to improve if you never get started. Right. I love that. That's such growth mindset. That's really amazing. I think that you're really inspiring because you're such a doer (sighs) and that there are so many people that we encounter that just stick, just like you said, they stay in that frustration and they find ways to vent, you know, talking to their best friend or creating a group or complaining a lot at school. I found that it can become a very toxic environment mm-hmm. at traditional schools because parents really aren't happy, but it just spins around and around and around and they don't find that way out to say, you know, I'm going to do something about this. And I don't mean it in a judgmental way. Parents, working parents, come on, you've got enough on you. And then Mm -hmm. to have to try to then also like invent a whole new thing for your kids. But um, I think that's just so great that you've created a pretty simple and honest roadmap and it doesn't candy coat it, right? Like sometimes Mm -hmm. you, I love that we're scrap. What'd you say? We're scrappy and we're happy. And happy. Yep. And happy. Yeah. And just to open it up and get started and kind of, um, it reminds me of that adage, like jump off the cliff and the net will be there to catch you. Yes. Yes. What's the other parallel saying? Sometimes the only mode of transition is a leap of faith. Oh, that's really good. Yeah. And, and so what made you like, do you feel like you were just born with this ability or do you feel like you've been, you went through experiences in your life that kind of took that fear factor out for you? Have you had, you know, what's been kind of like your hero's journey that has made you be like that? You know, I would probably trace it back to my traumatic and abusive childhood. I had three big brothers. And to me, Mm -hmm. that was like, what? (laughs) (laughs) But I was like, I'm going to keep up with you guys. Don't leave me out. Wait, wait, wait. You know, so I think that I probably had tenacity or don't tell me I'm too small or don't tell me I'm a girl. So maybe that was a piece of it, just determined to keep up. Um, I've always just kind of felt for the outlier. Um, And then being overseas, we were the outlier. I mean, my daughter, uh, the one with 
autism has a has trisomy X tall stature. So she was like 5'11 when she was age 11 and blonde. And there we were in the Philippines where everybody was, she had to have specially made pants for her uniform. And the seamstress is holding them up and the pants are as long as the whole seamstress, you know? (laughs) So, so we were the outliers in a lot of places or we didn't know the language or we couldn't read the signs. There were, I can remember in Hungary, they had all these automated machines and I would have to say, Carrick for please, point to my carrots, point to the machine because I couldn't get the price tag because I couldn't figure out which button to push. You know, Uh so there's so many times where I was illiterate, you know, and I was the foreigner or I was the one that was lost and it was pre-cell phone in in some of the places we were. And it's like, yikes, help. So I think life experiences remind us all that we're vulnerable. and, And then I just see so much potential in kids. I'm, I'm not the person that's going to be uh, saving the planet and really knowing environmental issues or, you know, creating wonderful scientific cures, but kids are my, they're my jam and they have so much potential. And I just really want to use my gifts fully to, to help them shine. They're our future. Why wouldn't we want to? Yes, I hear you. I agree. Where are your daughters now? So my older daughter is in Tucson. She was like, what? We left all these tropical places and you put me in rainy Seattle? Uh, I don't know. So she's been in Tucson for a bit. And my younger daughter went away to college and then went to South America and worked in a nonprofit and did an internship. And, And then she's like, yeah... I think I want, she wanted to turn 21 back in the U.S. where it mattered because she was, she missed it in college because she had started college young. Um, And so she's in Seattle. So I'm about 20 minutes north of her. I don't see her very often. And now with the pandemic, even less, but she's been super active in the protests that have been in the news. And yeah, it's a, it's a big part of our family's story. And both of them are shining in different ways. And um, I think that they have a love of humanity just from getting to be exposed to so many different things and being on both ends of the stick, the one that has all the privilege and the one that's kind of lost and so grateful that other people are navigating that culture with them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wow. So, and college, like you just mentioned college, tell Tell us, like, what are you thinking about college? There's so much talk now, you know, even prior to the pandemic, you know, I think some people had started thinking like, is college worth it? Like all of this huge expense and then it's kind of um, postponing growing up in some ways. It's sometimes it's just a place to go and party and then you come out and you still really don't know what you want to do. Um, so people were sort of, sort of starting to question that indoctrination that we have about like you must go to college and then now because of the pandemic obviously that's been called into much more questioning where do you land kind of in that debate or what have you been thinking about what are you telling your high schoolers so we because we're so project-based and and learner-driven we have a dual enrollment program in washington where you can take free college classes as a junior and a senior Um, so we 
have our kids, our juniors and seniors, anybody that's thinking college, we nudge them to take at least English 101 online or a math class online so we can coach, we can support, and they can understand this pace is insane and the prof isn't going to give you 20 extra reminders and when it's not in on time, it's a zero, done. You know, that reality check. So we nudge kids to give that a try because college is still in a lot of families' minds. I'm disappointed that our model is so, once a prof has tenure, and my, my dad was a prof, and that's why I originally got my doctorate. I wanted to keep that open, um, that once you have tenure, you're there for life, and you're so busy publishing or perishing, so either researching or writing, that you know it's grad students teaching kids. A lot of times, it's not the professor because they have to be writing. Um, I wish we would learn from other systems. My first board president uh, was Microsoft, and he's from the Netherlands. He's like, yeah, when I was in high school, we high school kids chose our college. If your college wasn't doing cool stuff, we wouldn't go there, and then you wouldn't have a job. So it wasn't tenure. It wasn't teachers were entitled to a job. They had to be impressive, be doing stuff kids thought was valuable. Um, Quest University, just up in British Columbia, up, up in Canada, they have cohorts and they all go through and do their English class and then they all move on. There are other places that look at it differently and look at it communally and not just a different subject and cram, 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 memorize. My daughter called it. She said, just put me in college at 15. I give up. I don't want international baccalaureate. I don't just put me in college, whatever. You know, she, but she said, it's all academic bulimia. Yeah, just binge and purge and may as well get me through it. And Luckily, we found, I know, and it, it was, yeah, and as for 15-year-olds, I know, but it was like, yeah, thank God I found an interdisciplinary design your own major, um, narrative report cards, and you work with your profs, program for her so that she would be passionate, and she went on and did law, justice, and diversity, but she did not want that canned lockstep. She said, if I get high school and college credits at the same time, I'll do it to finish high school. But why would I want debt? Why would I want more of this? So I think the whole institution and access to it and how things are taught, we need to rethink it. We're not aligning with how people learn. And the access in this day and age should not be this expensive and this skewed. So I'm hoping the pandemic helps all of us rethink a lot of things and really look at equity as we're doing it and what research tells us. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Tell me more about that, about their research. Brains don't learn sitting and being talked at. Mm -hmm. And and most of college classes are memorized and spit it back out again. And it is that academic bulimia. Wait a minute. What happened to Montessori? And when it's my passion and I'm into it and I get to create, it sticks and I'm inspired and I want to go deep. We know that. And we know that doesn't go away just because a body's older, but all of a sudden learning is too important to do that childish model. No, learning is too important to not do that. And now there's a new mad, a major project management. It's like, yeah, teach design thinking, teach how to create and redesign, teach some of these processes because a lot of things that we used to get degrees in, you could just Google and do now. So right. teach us how to keep learning, how to keep evolving, make things meaningful. Research says the least effective way of, of instruction is talking at. And what yeah. do most universities still do? Talk at. I read that after 14 minutes of a lecture, the brain is less active than when it's asleep. 
<laughs> That's why we don't do lecturing either. But why do yeah. universities get to charge top dollar to do that? Right. Yeah, yeah it's crazy. So um, tell us about you. Like you have such enthusiasm, and you're so confident, and you, you know, for you this seems like kind of easy. But tell us about like the hardest thing about this. Like tell us some kind of really hard roadblock or, um, or obstacle that you had and how did you get over it? Yeah. Well, first of all, starting any business is hard. And so don't you, that's why I said, get a tribe and look creatively at resources. It is hard. And there are times where I've been crying and like, oh my gosh, we're never going to make it. And any business goes through those ups and downs, uh, hard, is when like you know you have something but you can't get the word out enrollment enrollment is is really tricky families are like but like are you a real school does this mm -hmm. count we'll call it because they've been programmed and everybody's an expert in education because everybody went through school but right. i want to see what i had when i was a kid i want my kid to have that and and we've glossed over and it's the good old days and it's the you know looking at the grease musical it's the bonfires and the pep rallies and it's like <laughs> Nah, it was a lot of boredom and there were some meeting groups and there was a lot of wasted time, but we've glossed and we want that for our kid, even if our kid's like, but I don't, I just want small or I just want to get done or I want to get back to my music. So I think it's hard to be different because parents are I call it a wall of shame. I think younger parents like, Hey, my kid's having trouble with this or needs braces. And we're talking with each other at soccer matches and stuff. But by middle and high school, it's kind of that social media presence. I just put out the good and Oh, my kid made an elite soccer team. And there's this wall of shame. We don't say, you know what? My kid's cutting, or I think there might be an eating disorder, or I'm worried my kid doesn't sleep at night anymore. And we don't share those pieces. So we want to pretend everything's normal and where my kids going to school and college and this and that. And we don't share that we're scared or worried. And we think normal, I, I need to be normal and not let on pretty lonely. So I think getting parents to know that, Hey, it's okay. Be there for your kids, figure out what works for your kids, do it. We work a lot on our parent community, so our parents aren't alone. And we have small parent groups and presentations and parent coffees and evenings because it's lonely being a high school parent. And adolescents aren't the most joyful people to be around, and they're not just right. running up and giving parents hugs like when they were littler. So I think it's really hard to market something different. And then the adolescents are like, no way, uh-uh, I don't want to be different than any of my peers. I'm getting bullied. I'm failing all my classes, but I'm not going to some different school. So the mindset and the fear of being different, both parents and kids, is hard. You can have something amazing, but getting others to risk something different, even if they're failing where they are, and even if you offer scholarships, which we do, that's been a surprise. And that's ongoing hard. And then when families get in a lot of them, they're like, oh my gosh, you're not just transforming lives. You're saving lives. We are here. Boom. But it's harder than I ever thought to, to fill the school. Yeah, I hear you. I, I, everything you're saying is exactly what, what I experienced too. And I think it's easier to get kids in when they're younger into that system. Um, we find filling our middle school is much more difficult even though when kids do come from middle school, 
it does save their lives. It completely changes the game for them. And they, many, we've had many, well, several, we're not very old and we're not very big, but we've had several girls come in who are just like, just like shame, just shame. They're all shame. And they're so embarrassed. And within a year, they're like starring in the school play and they feel liberated and they feel happy and they love themselves and they love the, the life. And and even still, sometimes parents are like, no, but for high school, we're going to send them back to traditional school. And I'm like, why would you do that to them? Yes. But it is, it's that but exactly what you're talking about. You know, you remind me when you were talking of um, Glennon Doyle, like, have you read Untamed? Oh. The book Untamed. She's, she's amazing. She wrote, she had the blog, the, she was a mom blogger. She had Momastery. And then she ended up writing three memoirs and she got sober. She got pregnant with her first child and she got sober. And then she was interviewed by Brene Brown a couple of months ago or something. And, and she was telling Brene Brown that ever since she got sober, she's never been fine a day in her life. Like, and she's never felt fine. Like, how are you? I'm fine. She's like, I'm never fine. I'm always like, terrified or excited or nervous or depressed or whatever. I'm never fine. (laughs) Yeah. She's like moving forward and making decisions and doing amazing stuff. And so I just, when you were talking about that, it's like one could talking to you, one could think, well, I can't do this because that woman is so confident. But when you actually hear all the stuff that you're facing and how difficult it is and that you share your feelings, like, being sad or not being able to sleep at night or crying because it's hard, then it really normalizes the struggle for people. And I think that that's like an amazing gift that you're giving by sharing that vulnerability because it is really hard. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. And my teachers do that so well with the kids. You know, they'll share, oh, that failed. Or, you know, I just felt silly. I think I just messed up on that. You know, and and just being real with the emotions and spending time on emotions at every level, I think it just lets people drop in and be themselves. I I know um, the Seattle Public Schools wanted us, wanted to pay us. They say, you have this therapeutic milieu. Will you take a couple of our students? We had a therapist every other week for an hour pop in, you know, amazing guy that we could count on, but we didn't have any special ed teachers or therapists. But when you let people have their feelings, kids at our school are like, oh yeah, I was in residential treatment. Did you go to this one? I went to that one. Or you know what? That was really scary for me when I learned to drive. And you know, yeah, I have, I, you know, I'm, transgender or I have autism or they're just saying, this is who I am. And, and it's not like hiding behind a label anymore. It's like, this doesn't matter. Or yeah, we're multi-aged. Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of in between 10th and 11th grade. My credits are a little off. No shame. And so much vulnerability, small communities can be this place of healing. If we can feel comfortable sharing feelings, it's, it's pretty liberating. Yeah, I totally agree. I totally agree. Wow. I could talk to you forever. Um, <laughs> let me see. I just like, I have a couple of questions I definitely wanted to ask you. Okay. One question I always ask is I love metaphor. I imagine you love metaphor too. And, um, so I'm always struggling for like a great metaphor of the kind of school that you have. And I have comparing to the traditional system, because I think sometimes for people, they need a metaphor because they don't really understand like the, how, the differences. So what, what would be, could you think of a metaphor? 
You know what? Because I had to get my book because I couldn't remember my seven steps in order. One of my moms is a graphic designer. So this is our colorful mismatched socks. And I feel like a public middle and high school ask you to all be white gym socks and matched. So if you saw, exactly, (laughs) exactly. So if you saw in this picture, no two feet had the same sock on and different sizes, different left, right, everything. So my metaphor is our learners really are colorful mismatched socks. And what a shame when we bleach the heck out of them and want them all to be white gym socks. Yes. Oh, that is so great. Wow. Well, I think that's an awesome thing to end on. Um, we're going to, you know, we're going to in the below this, they're going to have like all the links to all your amazing resources so that families who are really considering this have this guidepost that you've made for them. What a gift. And that they can go in. Tell me the name of your podcast again. Education Evolution. Education Evolution. Okay, I'm going to go check that out when uh-huh. I go do my run right now. Uh-huh. Um, and thank you, been- Shannon. I, I really appreciate that you're getting the word out and helping everybody know of new schools, new opportunities. I think that this is, I mean, we're kindred spirits. So thank you for what you're doing Definitely. and for letting me be on today. Yeah, I know. I loved it. I loved every minute of it. Um, and we're, you know, the school that I have, you've, you've heard of Acton Academy, right? Yeah. So I have an Acton here in El Salvador and, uh, and it's just so similar. I just feel like we're jamming on so many of the same things. And that makes me feel really, um, it, it like reassures me because everything you're talking about is so similar to what we do also. Yeah. And so I feel like, you know, sometimes you wonder when you're doing a, a new thing, like, am I missing something? Am I doing mm-hmm. this right? And so I feel like a lot of these things are so in line that we're all like pointing at the same North Star and going in the same direction. And it just, it feels really good. Absolutely. So. Keep up the great job. It's so nice talking with you. You too. I'll be following you on social media and we'll <laughs> hopefully we'll meet again. Awesome. Thanks. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the New Schools Podcast. Tell a friend. Previous episodes and show notes, including any books or websites our guests recommend, can be found at thenewschools.com. If you're a parent who is looking for a new school for your family, send us a message. We would love to help. We can answer questions, share the resources we have, and help you get in touch with people in your area who are on the same path determined to provide their kids with the best education. It's wildly important work. Thank you for doing it. And we'll see you next time.